Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. And we start, of course, with the breaking news. Former Trump advisor Steve Bannon has been indicted by a grand jury and arrest warrant, we are told, will soon be signed by a judge. The indictment coming after Bannon refused a subpoena from the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. Let's get straight to CNN's Jessica Schneider on the scene outside the courthouse. Jessica, what specifically has Steve Bannon been charged with? Well, Jake, we now know that Steve Bannon has been charged with two counts of contempt of Congress and the Department of Justice issuing a release saying that those two counts stem from his failure to appear for a deposition and also his failure to produce documents for the House Select Committee. Obviously, this has been a several week long process. People around Washington, maybe around the country, wondering what the Department of Justice would do. All along, the attorney general has been saying that they would follow the facts and the law to possibly prosecute this case. I was inside the the, uh, magistrate judge's courtroom this afternoon when two uh, attorneys from the U.S. Attorney's Office here in Washington presented that grand jury indictment to the magistrate judge. The foreperson of the jury was also in the courtroom. And the judge, uh, the magistrate judge here, Meriwether, said that she would also be signing an arrest warrant here. Um, The release from the Department of Justice has said that an arraignment date has not yet been set. But this is significant. We know that the grand jury has at least been meeting for several days, possibly over the past few weeks. And today we saw an FBI agent walk into the grand jury room, presumably to give testimony before the grand jury. And it was shortly thereafter that we saw the prosecutors from the U.S. Attorney's Office walk out of that courtroom and then two courtrooms down where they swiftly presented this grand jury indictment to the judge. So while this process may have taken a while from the time that the House referred this criminal contempt charge to the Department of Justice, it was pretty swift this afternoon from the time the grand jury decided to hand this indictment down to the time when it was presented to the magistrate judge to her signing an arrest warrant to the department releasing this information. So yes, now Steve Bannon, uh, who was former chief strategist at the White House, indicted on two counts of contempt of Congress, one for refusing to appear for deposition, one for failing to produce documents. And of course, Jake, this will send a warning shot to the president's allies uh, who have so far refused to cooperate or appear or may in the future refuse. This is a warning shot to them that the Department of Justice will and can move forward and charge people with contempt of Congress here. Jake? That's right. I mean, we should note that Congress calls people to testify all the time. And, you know, oil magnates and tobacco company executives don't want to do it, but you got to do it. Um, So, Merrick Garland, the attorney general, has been criticized for for taking his time with this. Did he have anything to say today? He did. He actually released quite a lengthy statement 
courtesy of the Department of Justice. I'll read just a little bit about it because he talks about the fact that throughout this process, they've adhered to the facts and the law. He said, since my first day in office, I have promised Justice Department employees that together we would show the American people by word and deed that the department adheres to the rule of law, follows the facts and the law, and pursues equal justice under the law. Presumably, Jake, the attorney general getting this statement out there right away for any uh, possible criticism or claims that he's playing politics here. Throughout this process, the attorney general has stressed the facts and the law, leaving it up to his prosecutors, of course, with input from himself as attorney general. But he has let this process play out despite all of the um, the cries of what what's happening. Why isn't the Department of Justice moving fast enough? Um, today, the Department of Justice acted. The federal grand jury acted, handing down this two-count indictment. And the attorney general here sticking by his message that this was all about the rule of law and not politics. Jake. All right, Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. I want to bring in CNN's Paul Reed, who's uh, here with me in studio, Evan Perez, also with us, and uh, also uh, Caroline uh, Polisi, a federal criminal defense attorney, and Philip Bump, a uh, national correspondent for the Washington Post, as well as former prosecutor uh, Ellie Honig. Uh, Paula, let me, let me uh, start with you. Um, before this happened, the news that we were going to talk about was the fact that former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows uh, defied the committee today, refused uh, to show up. Um, I think that there are probably going to be a lot of Trump associates who see Steve Bannon arrested, which will happen soon enough, and think, huh, maybe I should cooperate. Absolutely. It's great news for the committee because we've seen so far they've had difficulty getting meaningful cooperation from the folks in Trump's inner circle who they have subpoenaed. Now, I know in talking to sources, there are certainly witnesses who have specifically been watching. What exactly is going to happen to Bannon? Will there be any consequences for completely defying this subpoena? Now, as seen, as you just noted, the former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, he took the Bannon approach, too. Instead of saying, look, there are some matters that may be privileged here, he just took a blanket approach and completely defied his subpoena, and the committee has already signaled that it may refer him to for criminal contempt. Uh, Evan, what comes next? So uh, a judge is going to uh, put his or her signature, I guess her signature, on on a warrant to arrest him. When would that happen, and, and what are the stages here? Look, I think, Jake, uh, we, we, we can expect his, uh, his arrest either today or, or perhaps they'll ask him to surrender on Monday. Um, but what this does, what this indictment does, is this now puts this in the court system and under the control of the, the, of the courts and the judge who will uh, take care of this, who, who will take charge of this case. And so from the committee's standpoint, uh, this is actually a bit of a problem because it's going to be some time. Before Steve Bannon, if they can, they can try to get some uh, some cooperation. If they want, if the goal here is to get whatever information they can get from Steve Bannon, uh, it's going to be a while uh, before a judge and and a, perhaps a jury gets to adjudicate all of this. You know, trials here in Washington, it doesn't, they don't happen very quickly. So from from that standpoint, it, it's a bit of, a, I think, it's going to be a bit of a frustration for the congressional committee. That said. As Paula pointed out, this is, and, and Jessica pointed out, this is definitely a shot across the bow for anyone else who is, who wants to defy. And, you know, the idea that the Justice Department for the first time in more than 30 years is enforcing one of these things uh, and has done the, the work that they believe shows that they can prove this beyond a reasonable doubt, I think really will, will weigh on all of those other witnesses. Again, it's going to be a while, though, before the, uh, the committee gets 
what it actually wants here. And Caroline, so we should obviously remind our viewers that an indictment is not a conviction. But theoretically, if Steve Bannon were to be convicted of two counts of contempt of Congress, is there jail time involved? How much? Is there a fine involved? How much? So each count, uh, Jake, carries with it the possibility of up to one year in prison. And yes, there are fines associated with the charge. Um, You know, I I would just note if I were uh, Mark Meadows today, I would be shaking in my boots because he was hoping that this exact situation uh, wouldn't exactly happen. And now it's showing, um, you know, those that would take the same path not to do so. It's been really a dirty little secret amongst um, those who represent people in front of these types of committees that really congressional subpoenas don't have very much teeth. You can really, uh, you know, bargain and cooperate with the other side in terms of what you can cover and, and what issues you don't want to cover. I think this is going to change the legal landscape for congressional inquiries going forward um, in every sense of the word. And Philip, do you th- do you think the other Trump allies who as of now had been uh, generally refusing to cooperate with this January 6th committee, do you think this is going to cause them to change their behavior to try to find some way to cooperate with the committee so they are not held in criminal contempt of Congress? Yeah, I mean, I I think that it's really important to remember the very, very wide difference between Mark Meadows and Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon, I think, has very, very few qualms about being seen as a martyr to the cause of Trumpism and going to jail and doing a perp walk in handcuffs and saying, I stood alongside Donald Trump and so on and so forth. I mean, he's, you know, he's he's already faced charges once in the past four years, right? Uh, Mark Meadows, I I, I think, is going to have a much harder time convincing himself that that is worth it, right? He, he, to to the point that was just made, I think Mark Meadows was very much hoping that this would not be seen as an eventuality. Obviously, the shift in administration, the shift in the Department of Justice means that this same same tactic that Donald Trump and his allies used when Trump was president, they knew that the Department of Justice under Donald Trump was not going to prosecute them for contempt. Now everything has changed, and now this is a very real threat as manifested by Steve Bannon. And I just find it hard to believe that there are going to be a lot of people who are going to be as willing, potentially, as Bannon to do the perp walk and to potentially face these repercussions. But Ellie Honig, let me ask you, um, Mark, had a, Mark Meadows was, at the time of January 6th, and the lead-up to it, the White House chief of staff, as were a number of individuals that the, the committee uh, has sought information and testimony from, including Stephen Miller and Kayleigh McEnany and, and, and a bunch of others. Their claim to executive privilege, do you think that they potentially have a stronger claim to executive privilege than Steve Bannon, who Trump fired, calling him Sloppy Steve, several years ago and was a private citizen at the time? Is there a difference there, do you think, in how much Congress will actually vote to hold a Mark Meadows in contempt of Congress? Yes, Jake, there's a very important difference there, which is Steve Bannon has the weakest executive privilege claim, which is now a criminal defense. He has the weakest defense of any of these people because, as you said, he was not part of the executive branch at the time. And one thing that's important to note, we're going to have two levels of battle playing out here. First, Steve Bannon's going to try to get this case dismissed. He's going to argue he has a legitimate executive privilege claim. That'll go to the judge. And then He's going to have a trial. We're going to have a jury trial, United States versus Steve Bannon. One thing that's really important to note, if he is convicted, as Caroline said, this is a misdemeanor, which is the less serious type of crime. The maximum sentence 
is 12 months, one year per count. However, this is a really unusual misdemeanor in that there's a mandatory minimum of one month in prison. So if Steve Bannon goes all the way through with this, gets convicted, he has to go to jail for at least one month. Let's bring in Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger. He joins us on the phone. This is obviously a breaking news story. He is, of course, a member of the January 6th Select Committee. He voted to hold Steve Bannon in criminal contempt of Congress. First of all, Congressman Kinzinger, what's your reaction to the news that the Department of Justice, a grand jury, has indicted Steve Bannon on two counts of criminal contempt of Congress? Well, thanks, Jake. Yeah, I think this is great news, not just because of, you know, the actual Steve Bannon part of this. You know, he's going to be important. But I think it sends a really important message to future, you know, invited witnesses, future folks that are subpoenaed. You know, you cannot ignore Congress. The reality is you may not like it. You may not like the investigation. You may think nothing wrong was done, but you're not going to be able to avoid it. And that is important for the people of the United States to be able to have their voice heard be able to get answers through Congress. So this is this is certainly a good thing, and I hope it sends a chilling message to anybody else that was going to follow through like this. There were individuals, uh, there were Republicans who voted to hold uh, Steve Bannon in criminal contempt of Congress, and not just you and Liz Cheney, uh, the only two Republicans on uh, the January 6th committee. There were others. As, as always, it was just a handful of Republicans, but there were others. Do you think they will be willing to join when it comes to holding somebody who has a better claim of executive privilege, such as former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, who basically flipped you guys the bird today by not even showing up uh, to testify. Do you think others will be willing to hold him in criminal contempt the same way as they did Steve Bannon? Yeah, I mean, if we go that route, I certainly hope so, because, yes, you know, maybe uh, Mark Meadows, for instance, can argue a little more logically, but still... I think it's pretty clear that there is no logical reason for there to be, you know, a resistance through the, the claim of executive privilege. That'll be adjudicated in the courts. We're, we're on a faster timeline uh, than I think the Trump people wanted us to be on, which is good. Um, but, yeah, I certainly hope not just those that have voted for contempt before, but even future folks will vote for it because the reality is it's becoming pretty clear through the justice, through the courts, uh, that they are making false claims. And if... Look, if the Republicans take control of Congress in a year, which looks fairly likely, they're going to want to have subpoena power, too. And it's going to be hard to argue for subpoena when you were part of doing everything to resist subpoenas for a very serious thing like January 6th. But just to just to not to put too fine a point on it, uh, if Republicans take control of Congress next year and we should know you're not running for reelection, so you would not uh, be in that group. Um, but if that were to happen, you would expect them to kill the January 6th committee if it still exists and it has not made its conclusions at that time. I think there is absolutely no doubt that would happen. And I think that is why, you know, we were happy to see the expedited timeline by the appellate court. And I think that's why it's, uh, frankly, the, the Trump folks are trying to stall. They don't have a claim of executive privilege. They know the answers aren't going to be great for them. So their hope is to make it to, you know, swearing in next year or the year following. Steve Bannon obviously has been lying about the election for months and months and months. Um, Lying to the American people is not a crime, uh, unfortunately. Um, What exactly are you looking? Are you trying to figure out how much he may have tried to conspire to bring people to Washington to violently stop the counting of electoral votes? What, What are you looking for, you and the committee? Yeah, he's a piece of a very broad picture. We've interviewed 150 witnesses so far. We expect to have a lot more. Um, he's going to bring a piece to that. So, you know, obviously there was his comments 
uh, the day before January 6th, where he was kind of wink and nod, this is going to go way different than you expect, very much seems to have known something that was going to happen. Uh, and, and so there's a lot of stuff, partic- you know, participating in the war room prior. What we want to know is what did he know? You know, who was he talking to? Who was coordinating? If there's nothing to hide, you come in and you talk to the committee and you tell us there's nothing to hide. If there's something to hide, you resist subpoenas and ultimately get indicted by the DOJ. We just want answers. That's what the American people deserve, no matter what side of the political spectrum they are. And most importantly, that is what the future history books deserve, a full accounting of that day free of conspiracy, free of lies, and free of politics. What do you say to the Republican colleagues of yours whose lives were being threatened that day by this mob that Donald Trump and others incited and sent to the Capitol, and the mob seemed to be trying to stop the counting of electoral votes. Their lives were on the line, and yet so many of your colleagues don't seem to care, don't seem interested uh, in any sort of information being forced from Steve Bannon. Uh, What do they tell you privately? Well, I mean, so many of them privately, you know, agree with that we need answers, uh, but they tell me they're in, you know, a district that they can't do that. Well, you know, so am I. And, uh, you know, I, what I tell them, and I've kind of run out of, I guess, patience to, to try to convince, but what I tell them is like, look, everybody, ha- when you run for Congress, there's not a single person that runs for Congress not having some kind of a moral red line. Without the, you know, no person runs thinking, you know, I'm never going to take a tough vote if it can save the country. But somehow when you get in the job, re-election becomes the most important thing. And you can convince yourself that, you know, boy, if it's not me, it's going to be somebody worse. Well, this is the moment. This right here is the moment where if we don't stand up and get answers, we're going to see the country change in a very dark way, and uh, and it'll be totally foreseeable. And do you have any indication from any of the other individuals who you and the committee have sought information from that this move by Attorney General Garland, uh, I know it's, it's only 25 minutes old, uh, mm-hmm. but that this move might cause them to rethink how cooperative they're going to be. I should note that I don't think Donald Trump is coming to pay for the legal fees of any of these individuals. Well, he's certainly not. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't have any firsthand, you know, since this is broke. But, look, um, I think it's clear there are a lot of people that don't want to and necessarily can't afford high-priced attorneys to try to litigate their way through this. Um, all we're asking is for testimony. You know, we're just asking for answers. So I certainly think this will have a chilling effect in terms of anybody that's been trying to resist. And I certainly hope we don't have to keep repeating this. We just want answers. That's it. And it's a pretty simple request, I think. Last question, sir, and we do appreciate your calling in. Um, you said earlier that 150 people uh, had testified are you finding out that there was not that this was not just spontaneous, that there was a conspiracy, that there was a plan to do this, that there will be people who ultimately will go to jail and not just for criminal contempt of Congress? Well, I don't want to get too much into, obviously, what we found, because we want to, we want to present this in a comprehensive way. Um, I'll say that there's a lot of, you know, our eyes are being open to a lot of things, not just on you know, the front of what happened domestically, but, you know, things like misinformation being pushed by other countries. But that'll all be revealed uh, as we have the answers in due time. Uh, but just know that we are committed in a nonpartisan way, not just bipartisan, in a nonpartisan way 
to get the answers to this that the American people and, frankly, our kids and grandkids, even not born yet, deserve to have. I have an allusion to the unborn child you have coming, and we congratulate you for that. And, uh, and thank you so much, uh, Congressman Kinzinger, for, for calling in. You bet, Jake. Thank you. Let's bring back uh, our panel of, of legal experts. I want to bring in CNN legal analyst Kerry Cordero. Uh, what's your reaction to this indictment? Is there a strong case against Steve Bannon for criminal contempt of Congress, both refusing to testify and refusing to turn over documents? I think there is a, a strong case against him, and that's evidenced by uh, what the grand jury's done. But I think actually, Jake, the more significant consequence is what this indictment is going to mean for the other witnesses. Um, in between where you have former chief of staff Mark Meadows and where you have Steve Bannon, there is a range of individuals in between the level of chief of staff and and, and Steve Bannon who uh, were working in the government or not working in the government and were in some way involved or had knowledge of what was leading up to January 6th and who have been served with subpoenas by the January 6th committee. And I think those individuals are going to have a lot of thinking to do this weekend, because while Steve Bannon might be willing to go through this uh, criminal process and stand trial, uh, not everybody wants to go through that when the alternative is to simply testify or produce the information that this valid committee has requested. And and uh, and Paula Reed, we were talking uh, as the story was breaking um, about, look, Steve Bannon is doing what Donald Trump mm-hmm. uh, wants him to do, just, just shut it down, but as uh, is not uncharacteristic uh, of Mr. Trump's guidance, it's kind of stupid because Steve Bannon, correct me if I'm wrong, he could have just gone to Congress, testified, and said, I, I plead the fifth, mm-hmm. uh, and just not answered any of their questions and not been charged with criminal contempt of Congress, right? Exactly, and really undermine the committee's efforts here. I'm told by people in Trump's orbit, people who are sympathetic to the former president, that there was a more sophisticated way to go about this. He could have shown up. He could have asserted privilege for some questions, asserted his Fifth Amendment, maybe gave not-so-helpful answers for other questions, and that would have made it a lot more difficult to refer him for criminal contempt. It would have made the Justice Department's case more challenging, but so it really would have undercut the committee's ability to enforce these subpoenas or to get this meaningful cooperation. But I am told that he is playing to an audience of one, and he does have the resources to fight this case, which is why he took this approach. But again, there was a more sophisticated way for him and for Meadows to approach this that would have perhaps protected them from criminal contempt referrals and also really undermined the committee. And Ali Honig, uh, what about the documents? Because obviously Steve Bannon was charged with two counts of criminal contempt of Congress. Paul just explained the one, the easy way he could have, you know, dodged uh, criminal contempt of Congress by not showing up to testify charge, just show up and be uncooperative or plead the fifth, uh, non-responsive, give a speech to insult the Democrats, whatever. Uh, and that would have ended, that would have avoided that. What about the documents that he was asked to produce? Is there a way he could have avoided a criminal contempt of Congress charge for failing to produce those? Absolutely, Jake. There there would have been a much smarter way available to Steve Bannon. He could have taken the fifth as to the documents. If he argued these documents would incriminate me or turning them over would incriminate me. Or as Paula said, he could have been more selective and said, I believe these documents are privileged, but these are not. That would have made it much more difficult for the Justice Department to charge him criminally. Another thing that's important to keep in mind, this is a, a, a law that is about punishment and deterrence. So 
even if Steve Bannon gets convicted of this, he goes to jail, but it doesn't force his testimony. And the hope is that it deters people, that rational people will say, okay, I don't want to go to prison. I'm going to testify. So we'll see how stubborn and how dug in Steve Bannon is here. Let me bring in, uh, bring back Evan Perez, who's our, our Justice Department correspondent. Evan, what do we know about the internal debate at the Justice Department about how to proceed with all of this? I, I you know, you have a room full of lawyers. There's no way they're all on the same page. Yeah, I mean, as you can tell, uh, it took three weeks to get to this point. And I know that there's been a lot of criticism about what was taking so long. Well, I'll tell you what was taking so long is, uh, you know, for decades, the Justice Department has been on the side of people who work in the exec- executive branch, even after they've left uh, the administration, even after they're gone, uh, has been on their side on this idea that there is executive privilege, that uh, they're protected from having to, to provide testimony or documents, even have, having to show up. That's been the internal legal guidance. So to get to this point, uh, you know, the lawyers here had to uh, come up with uh, some new some new guidance. And so, uh, Jake, I'm told that, you know, they, they had to go to the uh, Office of Legal Counsel to, to go over some of the guidance here. And, and part of the issue here turns on the fact that this claim of executive privilege obviously is coming from the former president, and the current president is waiving that privilege. And at least according to the people in this building, they believe that, that the, the current president is the final say. I, I, think, I, I think most of us would, would, would view it that way. Of course, that's now in uh, part of the litigation that's going on in the Court of Appeals. Uh, but I think what they believe is, and you can see this in some of the, the language that has been used in uh, the National Archives, uh, 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 the briefs that have been filed in court, uh, the Justice Department has come down on the idea that Steve Bannon doesn't get to claim executive privilege based on the former guy. The current guy, the current president, we only have one president at a time, is the one that decides. And he has said that Steve Bannon should have provided this testimony. He should have been turning over these documents. And so this is the reason why he's going to be arrested and and, and charged for this this crime now. And and Gloria Borger, um, let's go big picture uh, with you. Sure. For the average American out there in Montana or Florida or Arizona, what's the significance of what happened today? Well, it's very significant because what it means is that Congress has oversight responsibilities of the executive branch that cannot be denied, period. And that uh, what the Justice Department has done today is to say people who are contemptuous of that, people who do not honor congressional subpoenas will be held in contempt. And, you know, it's not like there's a huge uh, uh, fine or jail time or anything else like that, because there is jail time, um, a maximum of a, of a year, I believe, and a small fine, maybe a thousand bucks, whatever it is. But, w- but it's not good to be held in contempt of Congress. And what it says is that Congress has to be able to do its job, period. And I just want to read something to you from Congressman uh, Raskin, Jamie Raskin, who's on the committee. He says, and I quote, I am certain there will be little patience for anyone who is just blowing off congressional subpoenas. We have been moving promptly to respond to defiance to any House subpoenas. And that is exactly what they're doing because they've been blowing it off. You saw the former chief of staff today not even showing up. Uh, for a a deposition, uh, blowing it off, not showing up, showing their contempt, if you will, 
And what what uh, the Justice Department is saying is that, you know, this is Congress's job and you cannot do this. We have, you know, three branches of government here. And um, I think so. I think it's a hugely important step as we try and unravel what happened on January 6th. But it's also a hugely uh, important step for the balance of power. Yeah, I keep thinking about um, Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State Clinton, testifying for hours and hours. 11 before hours. The, before the House of Representatives about uh, the tragedy That's right. at Benghazi. It's not always pleasant, but our system is built around checks and balances. Much more on our breaking news. Trump advisor Steve Bannon has been indicted by a federal grand jury on two charges of criminal contempt of Congress. Everyone stick around. We're going to squeeze in a quick break. We'll be right back. We are back with our big breaking news. A federal grand jury has indicted former Trump advisor Steve Bannon for criminal contempt of Congress. Bannon has been charged with one count related to his refusal to appear for a deposition in front of the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection and another count related to his refusal to turn over any relevant documents. Let's bring back our panel of experts. Um, and Nellie Honig, a former federal prosecutor, um, let me turn to you. This is just about punishment, I guess, for refusing to testify, but it still does not force Bannon to testify, right? Will, or will this compel his testimony? No, as a legal technical matter, Jake, it's just about punishment. It's just about potential prison time. So if he goes all the way to trial and he's found guilty, he'll get sentenced. He'll serve at least one month in prison. But that does not force him to go in front of Congress and testify. The thinking here is that people generally are rational beings. I'm not we can argue about whether that applies to Steve Bannon. But when faced with the possibility of prison, they're going to opt to testify. And the same lesson, I think the, the idea here is may apply to other people who may be having similar thoughts to Steve Bannon, that they'll be deterred and they'll choose testifying over getting indicted. And Evan, there is a Justice Department memo about charging people who worked in the White House. Could that protect Mark Meadows, uh, who is the White House chief of staff, former White House chief of staff, who refused to testify, uh, flipping a bird essentially to the January 6th committee today uh, and not Steve Bannon? Well, look, I think I think Meadows thinks it does. Uh, but, you know, I think what, what the Justice Department has done today and what you've seen from uh, from the legal guidance that 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 is behind the position taken by the National Archives is that the current president has waived that privilege. So therefore, it does not apply. He's not he's not shielded at all. Uh, Meadows and Bannon have been claiming that because the former president was asserting that privilege, that it still covered them, that it still applied to them. We can see today from the fact that, that Steve Bannon is being charged that the Justice Department is saying, no, it doesn't work that way. And what that means is that decades, Jake, decades of legal guidance from this building that uh, even former people, former members of the administration are, are shielded by, by, this, uh, by this idea of executive privilege. It doesn't necessarily apply if there's a dispute as there is right now, right? The former president is claiming he has, that the privilege exists. The current president is saying no, and, and the Justice Department is siding squarely with the current president saying, no, this, is, this doesn't work. And so, um, look, we're going to wait to see what the appeals court and, and whether the Supreme Court takes up that, that, that challenge. But it looks pretty like thin odds for them to succeed on this at this point. Uh, and, and Paula Reed, let me ask you about that, because, look, I understand the argument Steve Bannon was a private citizen mm -hmm. uh, running his podcast, uh, whatever mischief he was up to. 
Uh, he does not get to claim executive privilege, even if he was talking to the president. But Mark Meadows was the White House chief of staff at the time. And still, President Biden said to the January 6th committee, no, have at it. There's, I'm not going to allow privilege to be invoked. Were, were you surprised about that? Were, were Trump's lawyers surprised about that? I was, I was a little surprised, but I can tell you the sources that I speak with within Trump orbit were certainly surprised because at the beginning of this investigation, they told me, look, if anyone's going to get privilege protection, it would be the chief of staff, possibly the White House counsel, but we haven't gotten to that. They argued that, of course, they're not going to waive privilege for the chief of staff because they don't want a potentially Republican-led House in about 14 months to turn that back around on them. So I asked sources inside the White House about that during the course of this investigation. And they argue, look, we're not sweating a future Jim Jordan investigation because we believe that the insurrection was an extraordinary circumstance. And this is unusual and this is not what privilege was meant to protect. It's a strong legal argument, but it could potentially be a lawyer full employment act in 14 months if Republicans take control of the House and want to start experimenting with this idea of what is and is not an extraordinary circumstance. Right. And, and Phil Bump, uh, if he's still still there, uh, Phil Bump, one of the one of the arguments that you just heard uh, from Paula Reed, uh, the, the White House, the Biden White House argument is an argument based on planet Earth, uh, where <laughs> This uh, January 6th insurrection was an extraordinary, horrific thing. But as we know, there are a number of Republicans in the House of Representatives who do not currently reside on planet Earth. They live on this Trump world uh, where the insurrection was on Election Day and there was all this election fraud, all these things that are not true. So the Biden people can say, well, this is just extraordinary circumstances and future, future Congresses, future majorities in Congress will respect that. I don't know what world they think those people live on, though. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, it's a world in which the full weight of the government, you know, levying criminal charges against someone is seen as preferable to Donald Trump being mad at you, as we're seeing in the case of Steve Bannon, right? I mean, Trump's Trump's gig all along has been deny, 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 don't comply at all, don't help at all. That was that was from day one, from when he came down the escalator, that was the approach he took here. And that's what he is clearly demanding of people who worked with him during this time period. And so the question is, yeah, again, Steve Bannon understands, like, he, 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 he is very much entwined in that world financially and, and politically. The question is how many other people are going to make that same calculus? Mark Meadows not showing up today suggests, you know, I mean, if you read the indictment, it's basically like a how-to of how to avoid contempt charges. All you have to, you know, say which things you're going to say are privileged. Give us a list of what those things are, documents and testimony, yada, yada, yada. If you read that, you come away with, here is a way in which I can comply but still not be held in contempt right off of the bat from, from the committee. That's not the angle that, that Steve Bannon shows. I think it's very fair to assume it's because Donald Trump said, if you help at all, I'm going to go to war with you. Something along those lines. We certainly see him do things like that in the past. And I'm just not sure how much weight that's actually going to carry for a lot of these folks, low-level former White House staffers, who are not necessarily going to think that that's the best bet to make. Uh, let me bring back Evan Perez, uh, who covers the Justice Department for us. When, when this is a, it's, Friday at 4.38 p.m. East Coast time. When are we going to see Steve Bannon arrested, uh, the, the warrant drawn up? The, and, and will he go to prison? I mean, or jail, I should say. Uh, w- what happens? All of this is going to go down on Monday. We're now told, uh, Jake, that uh, he is, uh, the, the, the Justice Department, the FBI, uh, has now uh, made arrangements for 
Bannon to turn himself in on Monday, and then he will appear before a magistrate or uh, before a judge on, on Monday afternoon. Uh, again, that's when he's going to be processed, uh, and, uh, and I don't anticipate that he's going to, to sit in jail while this, course, uh, while this case uh, makes its way in court. Um, the fact that the Justice Department is allowing him to, to, to self-surrender gives us a sense that they don't think he's a flight risk per se at this point. Uh, but, you know, it's unusual to have these things returned on a Monday afternoon if you don't want someone to spend their, their, their entire weekend in, in jail. So it's clear that there's been some communication with Steve Bannon's legal team to have him surrender on Monday and for him to be presented uh, to hear these charges before a judge on Monday afternoon. And Caroline, uh, let me ask you what you think. I'm, I'm picturing different members of the Trump team having Tom Wamspaws like uh, fears of going to jail. That's a reference to succession for anybody out there who doesn't watch the show. Uh, and just like fearing that they are going to go to jail as well. Uh, they are going to face these charges as well. Uh, it's one thing to be defiant uh, theoretically. It's another thing to be defiant when they are actually bringing criminal charges and indicting people. Yeah. I mean, sadly, Steve Bannon isn't going to jail anytime soon. He almost certainly is not going to be remanded pending um, his trial here. He, he's not sort of a, a risk to society, as Evan noted. You know, he's, he's not a flight risk. These aren't the types of charges that would warrant him going to jail uh, pending the outcome of, of his case. Um, you know, I, I think that really this news is is good news for the committee in that Mark Meadows likely will be given a second chance and he likely uh, will have learned his lesson and, and sort of see what could potentially happen to him down the road. We'll now wait on the courts to decide, you know, this issue, which I think really will work to the committee's favor if it can be timely enough. That is, you know, the the committee uh, will will have to turn over the records and, you know, the witnesses will therefore have no legs to stand on with respect to an assertion of his executive privilege. And, you know, the issue is, is just timing. The uh, the legal world works uh, much slower than the real world, unfortunately, uh, even though they're trying to fast track it now. In uh, just in the few minutes ago, uh, Congressman Adam Kinzinger, the Republican from Illinois, uh, who was a member of the January 6th committee, uh, heralded uh, the decision by the Department of Justice to uh, have uh, an indictment for Steve Bannon. He also referenced an interview or um, remarks that Steve Bannon made on his podcast uh, just the day before the January 6th insurrection. L- let's play some of those. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. Just understand this. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. It's not going to happen like you think it's going to happen, okay? It's going to be quite extraordinarily different. And all I can say is strap in. The war room, a posse, you have made this happen, and tomorrow it's game day. So strap in. Carrie Cordero, um, that seems quite damning. What do you think? Well, certainly Steve Bannon knew a lot of information ahead of time just based on that statement that he put out in the public. Um, And so his testimony and his documents would have been very important for the committee to receive. I don't necessarily think that anything that's transpiring with respect to his indictment is going to result in his specific cooperation. So those public statements from Steve Bannon may be all that we ever learn from Steve Bannon. But what it will matter for, what his prosecution will matter for, is the other individuals who have been subpoenaed, because there's a lot of other people who were involved 
and who could potentially provide information. And they might not be willing to go through a criminal trial and potentially uh, be sentenced, even if it's a misdemeanor and potentially be in jail for a year. So I think there's are those individuals who are going to have to think hard about that. But I also, Jake, if I can, I just want to level set with respect to what this means as far as Justice Department precedent. You know, the pres- the former president's team and Steve Bannon and the other individuals who are not complying with the congressional subpoenas, they want the public to think that they are defending executive privilege, but they are not. The individual and the administration that makes the decisions about executive privilege is President Biden and his administration. And he has already made the decision that this committee's investigation is of such historical significance that People should comply and the archive should release information in the other matter. And so this is not about protecting executive privilege. What Steve Bannon was doing was defying the rule of law and what the other individuals who are not complying are doing are defying the rule of law and the ability of Congress to do its job. And they are using executive privilege as a shield, but actually they are weakening it. And it's the current president who is the one who makes that decision. Kerry Cordero, thank you so much. We're going to continue our breaking news coverage. Former Trump advisor Steve Bannon indicted by a federal grand jury on two different contempt of Congress charges. Coming up next, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is going to join us after wrapping up a cabinet meeting with President Biden on how to fix the supply chain issues that are hitting your wallet hard and other matters. Back in a minute. Stay with us. More breaking news for you now. This out of the White House, where President Biden just wrapped a meeting with top cabinet officials, where he announced plans to name someone from outside the administration, outside the Biden administration, to oversee implementation of the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill. Let's discuss with Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. Mr. Secretary, so obviously you just came out of that cabinet meeting with President Biden. Um, Tell us about this individual that's going to be in charge uh, of the money. Tell us more about that. Well, uh, so I know that'll be announced soon. Uh, You know, the president laid out his clear and very high expectations. Uh, Now that Congress has authorized this major investment for us to use every penny of those tax dollars wisely and effectively. You know, he was in charge of seeing to that in the Obama-Biden administration. He's very proud of the exceptionally low rate of uh, waste and abuse that happened with the uh, hundreds of billions of dollars of stimulus funding that went out uh, then. And he's made clear that he expects us to meet that that same very, very high standard. A lot of responsibility on agencies like mine, but also the White House will be uh, coordinating and, and leading on that accountability, just as they have with the American rescue plan. And we take that responsibility very seriously. So in addition to celebrating the passage of this historic bill, uh, even before the the signing has happened on Monday, already a real focus on that implementation, that execution, so that as we're funding those roads and bridges, as we're improving those ports and airports, uh, the trains and transit and all the other things in the bill, uh, that every American has full confidence that it's going to be spent wisely and spent well. How soon can the American people expect to see shovels going into the ground? Uh, broadband appearing in their communities, uh, lead pipes replaced. How soon will the public see results? 
Well, a lot of these dollars are going into programs that already exist. They're going into the formula that funds our highways. They're going into the discretionary uh, grant programs that I can use to help support everything from a, a port improvement somewhere to a, a rail yard that, that needs to be adjusted to a city trying to make its streets safer. Other things, we're going to have to stand up whole new programs, uh, dozens in my department alone, to effectively meet those infrastructure needs that have build, been building up since the Eisenhower era. Uh, one thing that's really important to remember uh, is that this is not quite the same as that 2009 bill when the, the focus really was on what they called the shovel-ready projects, getting those dollars into the economy right away. Here it's about making sure that we do work right away and for the long run. I mean, this it's really about investments uh, that will define the 2020s. And so the focus is on shovel-worthy projects, uh, things that are worth doing, sometimes accelerating things that are already underway, other times launching whole new efforts that are going to prepare us to compete and win in the rest of this century. A lot of times, I regret to tell you, uh, the U.S. government, uh, in terms of its action, uh, is sclerotic, slow-moving. Um, we saw that happen with the rent relief program that passed last year to help the individuals who were hit hard by COVID uh, pay their rent, even if they were unemployed, and very little of it went out the door in time. Uh, we also saw that happen with COVID relief money going to states and cities that were slow to spend the money. A lot of it remains unspent. How can you ensure that that doesn't happen with $1.2 trillion, and, and you just talked about standing up uh, new government projects. Well, that's where we've got to build on the success of our best programs and make sure that we have the, the right kind of nimble approach to get these things done. The good news is we have a lot of state and local partners who are poised and ready to put these dollars to work. Uh, remember, uh, when you've got a bridge in your community that has been decaying for years, uh, when you know exactly what it would mean for your airport to come up to speed with the best airports in the country or in the world, uh, when uh, you've got a port that, that needs a lot of investment, uh, often the plans have been drawn up for a long time. Sometimes that applications have been ready to go and gone into my office. I'm going through one set right now uh, where we have something like uh, $1 billion to work with for $10 billion worth of applications. And some of those communities have come back again and again and again with good projects, but have been turned away because it just didn't quite meet the cut. So I have every confidence that uh, there are good projects ready to go. But also, uh, again, working with the White House, uh, we're going to have a very, very high threshold of accountability, of trans transparency to, to make sure that it's done efficiently and to make sure that, that we're really using those taxpayer dollars uh, in a way that, uh, that makes the absolute most of them. It, it's, it's big dollars, um, but uh, it, that doesn't mean that, that there's uh, any room for, for slack uh, because there's always another good project worth doing that we can't if we didn't get the absolute most out of the dollars for this one. How are you going to ensure the accountability? Are you going to have the Department of Transportation Inspector General uh, have oversight over it? I mean, it, 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 no offense to you. It, it, I'm sure you mean it. I'm sure you're sincere. But there needs to be some sort of oversight responsibility that actually has the power to find things out. Uh, That's and, right. and call it out publicly, right? That's right. Uh, you know, the, the Inspector General Office, which uh, uh, functions in an independent way, is going to be uh, an important part of the accountability and implementation. So the General Accountability Office uh, that, that has interagency responsibility. Again, I know that the White House will be checking in early and often, as they have on the rescue plan, to make sure that things are going the right way. And I can tell you that I will personally uh, be uh, looking at everything that's going on to, to make sure that we're really getting this right. Uh, even before the bill has been signed, uh, we've set up... Uh, an executive policy committee. They just uh, uh, have another meeting, actually, as we speak, uh, with my deputy, uh, my colleagues, uh, the deputy secretary, the 
undersecretary, heads of all the different agencies from the Federal Rail Administration to the folks getting those highway dollars out. We take this very seriously because, you know, this is an opportunity also to build confidence yeah. in the ability of our administration to get things done. There's already been, I think, a huge leap over the sometimes low expectations of today's Washington, you know, vindicating the president's belief that you really can get major legislation even through today's divided Congress. Now we've got to have the administrative equivalent of that, uh, which is also beating uh, expectations of anybody skeptical the government can deliver. Well, let's talk about the government delivering on something else, uh, supply chain issues, which you are also uh, responsible for in part. Last month, the Biden administration announced that the two largest U.S. ports, the Port of Los Angeles and the Port of Long Beach, both in California, that they would operate 24 hours a, a, a day, seven days a week to speed things up. There's still a backlog, as you know, a record 111 container ships remain stuck off the California coast. President Biden had announced the 24 7 uh, project would, would last 90 days, but the head of the Los Angeles port told us a few weeks ago that this isn't going to be fixed in 90 days. It's going to take well into 2022. How long until we don't see 111 container ships off the coast of California and the supply chain issues are on their way to being fixed? Well, look, a lot of these are, of course, a consequence of the pandemic. And as long as the pandemic continues, uh, there will be pandemic-driven shortages, which is why the best way to fix that is to end the pandemic. But there are actions that we can take and have been taking that are making a difference. Uh, you know, uh, the president's port action plan uh, came out earlier this week, lining up things from uh, having sweeper ships go up, uh, clearing up some of the empties, uh, to having fines for companies that have their containers sitting there in the way, making it harder for another ship to come in and take advantage of a port. We even have uh, funding now. We've given some flexibility so that they can create what are called pop-up container yards in Georgia and North Carolina. The idea here for the Port of Savannah is that if you have the containers piling up on that precious portside real estate, move it inland and sort it out there rather than waiting for it to get sorted out uh, on uh, the acreage of the port. So a lot of creativity. It is making a difference, but Make no mistake, as long as we have major global imbalances between supply and demand, as long as we have a pandemic poking holes in supply chains in every part of the world, we're going to continue to see challenges, which is why we are working the short, medium, and long-term means of dealing with this issue. All right, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, on a personal note, I'd like to say we're also happy that Joseph and Penelope, your new babies, are home and doing well. Thank you so much. And, Thank you. Uh, and, and we're all so glad for you. Thanks. We're very relieved. Breaking news. A federal grand jury indicted former Trump advisor Steve Bannon on contempt of Congress. Much more ahead. Plus, thousands of people stuck in catastrophic conditions and there are fears it could escalate into war. Only CNN is live on the ground there. That's next. Then, Britney Spears in court right now. Her toxic relationship with the legal system could end at any moment. We're outside the Los Angeles courthouse. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin this hour with the breaking news of the day. A federal grand jury has indicted former Trump advisor Steve Bannon for criminal contempt of Congress. Bannon has been charged with one count for his refusal to appear for a deposition before the January 6th committee and another count related to his refusal to produce documents for the committee. Let's get straight to CNN's Jessica Schneider. He's outside the courthouse where this all just took place. Jessica when should we expect to see Bannon in court? 
That's the big question here now, Jake. We're waiting to see how exactly this plays out. But I was inside the courtroom when this magistrate judge, Judge Robin Merriweather, said she would sign this arrest warrant. So now the question becomes, does Steve Bannon surrender or is he arrested? An arraignment date for him has not yet been set, but his case was just assigned to a Trump-appointed judge, Judge Carl Nichols, who was appointed by Donald Trump in June 2019. So the question is, when does Steve Bannon um, possibly get arrested? When does he surrender? That still remains to be seen. But of course, a federal grand jury handing down this two-count indictment this afternoon. This is a grand jury who at least heard from one witness, as we saw today. Our producer, Hannah Rabinowitz, has actually been staking this out for several weeks, and today she noticed the activity. We came down to the courthouse. We saw an FBI agent going into the grand jury courtroom, presumably testifying. And then shortly thereafter, that's when two Two prosecutors from the U.S. Attorney's Office came out of the courtroom, walked two courtrooms down to the magistrate courtroom, and that's where they handed down this indictment that was returned by the grand jury. The foreperson of the grand jury was also in the courtroom, and the magistrate judge said that she would be signing this arrest warrant for Steve Bannon. This is a Justice Department, according to the Attorney General's statement, who has acted according to the rule and the law. We saw that play out today with the federal grand jury returning this indictment. Attorney General Merrick Garland, he issued a statement very shortly after news of this, of this indictment came out, Jake, saying that they adhered to the rule and the law of, and the law here. And that's something that the attorney general has stressed all along, obviously not wanting to appear like the DOJ under President Biden is playing any sort of politics here. Jake. All right, Jessica Snyder outside the courthouse. Thanks so much. Let's turn now to CNN's Kara Scannell for more breaking news. Kara, you have some new reporting about former President Trump's own legal problems. Yeah, that's right, Jake. I do. I mean, first, I just want to add something to what Jess was reporting. We just learned from one source familiar with the matter that Steve Bannon will self-surrender on Monday to face these charges. But as for the former president, he just scored two big legal victories. I'll start with the most significant. You remember the former apprentice contestant, Summer Zervos, served the former president sued the former president for defamation after she said that he lied about her allegations that he had sexually assaulted her. We're learning today through a court filing and her attorney that she has agreed to drop that lawsuit, to dismiss the lawsuit. There are very limited details here, but her attorney did say in a statement that today the parties have ended Zervos versus Trump. After five years, Ms. Zervos no longer wishes to litigate against the defendant and has secured the right to speak freely about her experience. Ms. Zervos stands by the allegations in her complaint and has accepted no compensation. So she and the former president have agreed to drop this litigation. And that's very significant because a judge had just ordered Trump to sit for a deposition in this lawsuit by December 23rd. So now that is now complete. The other big legal victory for Trump today is his former fixer, Michael Cohen, had sued his the Trump organization for legal fees, a judge just dismissing that lawsuit, uh, and Trump will have to pay no no damages. Uh, the judge dismissed both that with prejudice, so Michael Cohen cannot re-bring this lawsuit. And reached out to Michael Cohen. He said that he is considering whether to appeal this ruling. Jake? Mm. All right, Kara Scannell, well, with two decisions or two uh, happenstances that uh, are good for former President Trump. Thanks so much. I want to bring in former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara, who was fired by President Trump. We have so much to talk about, uh, Preet. Um, uh, first, obviously, the big story. Trump's former advisor, Steve Bannon, uh, was indicted for criminal contempt of Congress today by a federal grand jury. He's expected to turn himself in uh, on Monday. What is your reaction? So I, I've been predicting it. A lot, a lot of people have been predicting it. It's a very unusual thing. 
as people I'm sure have been pointing out in the last hour or two and before, this is the first time that the DOJ has charged someone with criminal contempt of Congress in something like 38 years. And one of the reasons it's uncommon is that you rarely have a situation where someone has uh, been so defiant of a congressional subpoena and where their claims to privilege or some other reason for not being able to testify are so weak. So I think it was expected. People were losing patience a little bit. It's been only 22 days to bring any kind of criminal case against someone, particularly one that the whole world will be following. Uh, you got to make sure that you, tr you cross all your T's, dot all your I's. But I think the case is clear. I think it's important both for the case of Steve Bannon and getting information from him, both testimony and documents, but also for you know sending a message to all the other people who are going to be defined, who have you know varying levels of defense to the subpoena. But I think it's an important message to them that the Justice Department means business. How much do you think this will actually have an impact on the other people in Trump's world who have uh, been subpoenaed or the the committee, the January 6th committee, is trying to get information and testimony from them? Because you can certainly argue that Bannon does not have a claim to executive privilege. At the time, he was a private citizen. He had been out of the White House for years. But Mark Meadows was White House chief of staff at the time. So many of these other individuals uh, worked in the White House at the time. Joe Biden, the president, who actually it's up to in terms of waiving or asserting the uh, executive privilege, has said no for Meadows, for example. Uh, but but might uh, courts see it differently? Yeah, look, I think that the different people have different levels of argument that they can make. Uh, among the whole crew, and it worked out this way for a reason, Steve Bannon has the least. He wasn't even in, in the employ of the executive branch at the time. He was an outside person. Um, he also was uh, you know, completely blanket refusing to come testify. You'll see that uh, Jeffrey Clark, a former DOJ official, basically did what Steve Bannon did, but he did it in a more subtle way. He showed up, showed respect to the committee, invoked privilege at various junctures, answered probably some mundane questions that didn't get them very far. But that's a way of showing respect for the committee uh, and, and reasonableness in the minds of that person. So someone like Mark Meadows has a better argument. And I think that the, the, the committee is going to have to pick and choose. I don't think they're going to make referrals as to every single witness with whom they have some difficulty getting information from. I think they're going to have to pick and choose for precisely the reason that you say, that there's a sliding scale of the arguments they can make. Now, I think most of them have poor arguments. But when you do something like this that is so rare and that's so fraught and so you know sort of politically charged, the clearer the case you can make, and I think it's very clear in Steve Bannon's case, the better. So you get, uh, you know, folks don't think that they can just betray and, and defy subpoenas with impunity, but it depends on the person. But there's nothing, what, what happens if on Monday, Steve Bannon goes to court, uh, he's released on his own recognizance, and then he says to President Trump in a private conversation, look, I did what I did, but now they're threatening to send me to jail. I'm just gonna do what Jeffrey Clark did, uh, which is just not be an idiot about it and still not share anything, but show up and tell them that the day of the week is Tuesday and uh, that I have a, you know, anything they already know, and then uh, just yeah. assert the, the, they can't assert executive privilege, but he can assert his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, I don't think this ends with Steve Bannon ever testifying, does it? Well, it, it need not. I mean, the only thing you can do in this case is bring a criminal charge, which the, the Justice Department has done. Then he gets a, a fair trial. Uh, and then if he gets convicted, he goes to jail for between one and 12 months. That doesn't you know, they don't they don't take you into a courtroom, administer sodium pentothal and at gunpoint tell you to talk. This is a statute that's designed to incentivize someone to talk and to punish somebody 
who defies an appropriate subpoena and doesn't talk, but doesn't force the testimony at all. As for the scenario you, you laid out, uh, you know, it depends on how cute Steve Bannon wants to be. He's already taken the position that he doesn't respect the committee. He, does, he doesn't need to turn over any documents or say anything. I think rehabilitating him by being, uh, you know, cute by half and now coming in and saying, uh, I'll tell you some stuff like my, my name, rank and serial number. I don't think it's going to stop the criminal proceeding. And by the way, in the case of Jeffrey Clark, all I'm saying about that is that you know he's gained some amount, some amount of of argument that he was respectful to the committee and that a criminal charge is unwarranted. I don't know that it's necessarily not going to happen in Jeff, Jeffrey Clark's case either. I just think that Steve Bannon played it in a way that almost compelled the Justice Department upon getting the referral to bring the criminal charge. If there is suspicion of criminal activity by Steve Bannon, why can the FBI not just seize his email and, and see if there are any records? I mean, I, I guess that's the question I have, because if they don't think that there's actually a possible criminal activity, then what is this all for? Well, you know, we don't know what documents they have. So, yeah, the, the documents that the, that the committee is seeking from Steve Bannon are things that Steve Bannon has in his possession, presumably electronic and otherwise. But the committee has the power, uh, as I understand it, to subpoena third parties, and that includes documents relating to email records. No, but I'm talking about not records. the committee. I'm talking about, like, the FBI. Yeah, no, sure. I mean, the FBI certainly, I don't know what the FBI is doing in that regard. We know that the FBI is seeking uh, and has sought and received, you know, thousands and thousands of pages of documents and records and toll records and communications with respect to all sorts of people who have been charged and probably yet uncharged in connection with the January 6th insurrection. So, as far as I know, the FBI is seeking and obtaining that kind of information from Steve Bannon and from the people uh, who he used to communicate with. All right, Preeper, uh, thank you so much. Always good to see you. More sure. on the breaking news next. Steve Bannon indicted for contempt of Congress. What does that mean for the rest of the Trump associates refusing to cooperate? Plus, could it be the very end of the control over Britney Spears? We're expecting a ruling on the pop star's future any moment. Stay with us. Back with our breaking news, former Trump senior advisor Steve Bannon indicted by a federal grand jury on two counts of contempt of Congress. Let us uh, discuss. First of all, I do want to say, Kirsten Powers, you do have this new book, which I wanted to talk about today, but we have all this breaking news. Yes. It's called we Saving were... Grace, and it says, uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, speak your truth, stay centered, <laughs> and learn to coexist with people who drive you nuts. We will talk about yes. this at a future we date, Thank you. but it is a lovely book getting wonderful reviews. Um, so... Your reactions to this big news, Steve Bannon, uh, in, one of Trump's most powerful advisors who has built an entire cottage industry around war room, MAGA, stop the steal, blah, blah, blah. What do you think? I think Steve Bannon is, it makes sense that he would push the limits of legality. It's not the first time that he's done this. Recall that if we're not for President Trump's pardon, he would still be dealing with the legal entanglements of uh, alleged fraud, where he was alleged to have pocketed a million dollars from Trump supporters who wanted to donate to build the wall. So this is this is not Steve Bannon's first brush with the law, but he doesn't have a President Trump in the White House to save him this time. And I think mm -hmm. in, when it comes to him versus the other people who are yep. in potential trouble here, his set of incentives are different because him being a bomb thrower or a martyr, that's different than if you're someone who's a more establishment person. Um, but nevertheless, I, I, the rule of law is the rule of law. Just because you're someone who has a really popular podcast uh, and commands a lot of Trump's base does not get you out of that. Right. I think that, you know, Steve Bannon does fashion himself as a martyr. I don't know if this really changes much of the 
calculation for him. Now, this is not a conviction, so we'll see if he actually he might like this. serves jail time. But he might like this, whereas if you're Mark Meadows and if you're some of the other former Trump administration officials who've been subpoenaed by Congress and are refusing to cooperate, this may send a message that there will be consequences for refusing to do so. And that's why this decision is so significant, because it really does reinforce that Congress has the authority to carry out oversight of the executive branch. In fact, that is one of its core responsibilities. And you will be held, you will potentially be held accountable if you defy, uh, you know, a subpoena request or refuse to cooperate with an investigation. And the Biden administration has also made its position, I think, pretty clear here, where they don't really see this as a, a case where executive privilege applies. They've said that this is something, this attack on democracy on January 6th is fundamental for the American public to really get to the bottom of what happened, who was involved, what they knew, when they knew it. And so I think this is a very significant ruling that could have implications for the rest of the committee's work. It was Adam Kinzinger, Congressman Adam Kinzinger, called in at the top of the show and, and said that he fully expects that if uh, Republicans retake the House uh, in a year, uh, they'll kill this committee. Uh, so he wants this to to go quickly because yeah. he he thinks that it, it, they're, they're living on borrowed time. Yeah, the clock's obviously running and all of the, you know, delay tactics uh, have been meant to try to run out that clock. I think this is obviously good for the Bannon brand, different for if you're a working lawyer uh, who needs good standing in a bar, for example, not not that kind of a bar, the right, bar, the bar um, yeah. to, uh, then if you were to be indicted and then, you know, convicted, that would obviously impact your ability to practice law. But if you're operating outside the system anyway, and the worst penalty is a month in not a prison, but a jail, um, maybe that's worth it for your brand. I'm watching something different. You saw Jim Jordan kind of tease it uh, just within the last few minutes, which is the idea that in in letting this go forward, the Biden administration is undercutting its own executive privilege or the future of right. executive privilege. I understand why that's a captivating argument. I'm not sure it's true, but I'm interested in hearing more about that. And just to give some background on that, so Congressman Jim Jordan, who is one of the big MAGA guys in Congress, Republican of Ohio, if Republicans take a control of Congress in, in a, of the House in a year, he likely will be the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. And I'm already hearing buzz from the Hill that within a couple months he will start impeachment proceedings against uh, Joe Biden. And I asked a member of Congress who told me this, for what? And the member of Congress said, for whatever polls best. Yeah, that's problematic, I think would be the right <laughs> word. I, I think that the thing that I'm actually looking for is I do think it's great for the for the Bannon brand. That's when people are sort of saying, why didn't he just go in and just talk to them? I think this is exactly what he wants to do. He wants to be a martyr. He would love to go to jail. And I also think it's a, something that Republicans are going to weaponize. And it's going to be look at the lawless Democrats and the politicized Justice Department and Joe Biden going after his political enemies, even though that's not what happened. Here. Right. But that, that is how this will be spun. I can almost guarantee on the right this will be used as another way to get the voters ginned up. And for, if you're Steve Bannon, it will be another way to say, you know, I'm being persecuted by the Biden administration. And, and just to remind folks, uh, I ran this clip uh, not long ago, but uh, Kinzinger referred to this when I was interviewing him in the last hour about why Steve Bannon's testimony is so important because people think that he had knowledge of what was about to happen on January 6th from his popular podcast. Take a listen. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. Just understand this. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. It's not going to happen like you think it's going to happen. Okay. It's going to be quite extraordinarily different. And all I can say is strap in. 
the War Room a posse. You have made this happen, and tomorrow it's game day. So strap in. Well, I mean, he's either the second coming of Nostradamus, or maybe he knew something that was going to happen. Well, and in that clip, he sounds to almost be sort of trying to take credit for, hey, it's my posse. It's the people that listen to my show are going to be doing things tomorrow. So, I mean, in a way, yes, it's important to do an investigation, but he's already put a lot out there, sort of putting himself at the center of a lot of what happened on January 6th. I was interested by something you said, uh, Kirsten, though, about the, the impeachment question and, and you know, the idea that this is something Republicans would pursue if they got the, the House back. Um, I think it would be a gross misreading of the mandate that Republicans would get. Yes. If they, I, look, Republicans are, are doing quite well in the polls right now. They're yeah. feeling good about next November, and they have every reason to be. It's highly likely that there will be a Speaker Kevin McCarthy. And I am sure that he is not interested in continuing the January 6th commission. And I'm sure that if Jim Jordan wants to bring impeachment proceedings, there won't be a lot of resistance. But that is not why Americans will be electing Republicans, at least what we know now about why they're dissatisfied with Biden. It's that they don't like the way the economy is going. It's the cost of living is going up. It's they have questions about handling of COVID. It's not because they believe Biden has done something worth impeaching. If you had subpoena power and sodium pentothal, what questions oh would you want answered by Steve Bannon? Because I'm of the opinion that we will never get a full accounting from him uh, because ultimately he will either go to jail uh, or and he will and, and be glad to do so. It will be great for his brand or. Uh, he will end up doing what is a smarter course, which is just to agree to testify and just take the fifth, plead the fifth and not answer any questions. But what do you want to know? What did he mean when he said tomorrow is game day? What did he mean when he said that we have, you have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow? There is a lot of subtext in what he was talking about there. And, you know, there were there were these efforts, of course, to uh, undermine the outcome of the election to delay the certification of the vote. But I think it's pretty clear in Steve Bannon's comments in that podcast that there was more planned on that day. And it wasn't just going to be a rally and then, you know, a peaceful protest at the Capitol. It, it ended up, of course, it, it culminated in the insurrection. And for Steve Bannon, for a lot of these other officials, what did they know in, in the weeks, months, days prior uh, to those events? And I think, you know, there's this uh, select committee and the investigation there. And then there's also these uh, records from the White House, uh, from the Trump White House, they're also still sitting with the National Archives and there's a protracted legal battle over that. So there's a lot of communications in Trump's inner circle that we still haven't been able to see that could reveal a lot more about what they knew before, during and after January 6th. All right. Thank you all. And just a reminder, saving grace, (laughs) speak your truth, stay centered and learn to coexist with people who drive you nuts. Kirsten Powers is the author and we will have you back to talk about the book. But in the meantime, buy it. Getting great reviews. Coming up next, a CNN exclusive. We're live on both sides of the Belarus and Poland border where a humanitarian crisis is unfolding. And we are back with a CNN exclusive in our world lead today. Thousands of innocent people stranded, trapped in the middle of a humanitarian and geopolitical crisis amid threats of hunger hypothermia, and what the United Nations is calling catastrophic conditions. This is happening on the border between Poland and Belarus, and there is fear that the situation could escalate into a military confrontation with the U.S. and EU allied on one side and Russia on the other. Today, Russia and Belarus held joint paratrooper drills near Poland, exercises that the Belarus Defense Ministry says was in connection to the border situation. CNN has exclusive coverage of this crisis on both sides of the Belarus-Poland border. Fred Pleitkin is in Poland 
Matthew Chance is in Belarus. Let's start with Matthew, who went to that migrant camp and has had a closer look at the dangerous conditions they're facing. These are the desperate trapped on the front line of Europe's latest refugee crisis. We gained exclusive access to the burgeoning camp at the Polish border in Belarus. Help, help, the little boy shouts. But there's barely enough help here to keep everyone alive. Already people have died in the cold as Polish forces stand guard on the other side. We can see how close we are just across this razor wire fence. Our Polish security forces there on Polish territory keeping a close eye on the situation, trying to prevent uh, refugees, migrants from this camp here in Belarusian territory, territory from crossing over that frontier line. You can see there are thousands of people here. 2,000 now, say Belarusian officials, but with migrants still flooding in from the Middle East and Asia, it could be 5,000, they told CNN, in just another week for Europe. That's a threat. You want sit down. Sit down. Sit down. You're warming your children's gloves here. Yes. Most, like Binar, have already paid big money to traffickers or Belarusian travel agents just to get this far. You're telling me you've paid $2,000, which is a lot of money, right, to come from Iraqi Kurdistan to here. Do you think you're going to get through? Do you think you will go to Germany? Yes. You do? Yes, we are. We are, we are. We all, all people staying here want to go to the Germany. Yes, but do you think it will happen? You'll try? Yes. We try. We don't want to stay in Poland. And the more migrants arrive, the more desperate their plight. We witnessed these refugees frantically scrambling for firewood, essential supplies, as temperatures here when Belarusian aid workers arrive with food and water, the scenes are even more full. I hope you get some food. You can see these are pretty extraordinary scenes. You've got um, Belarusian military forces essentially trying to push back the crowd of migrants that's gathered round this distribution of aid. They're just giving out bottles of uh, you know, plastic bottles of water. But the people here are so desperate for any kind of nutrition, any kind of food, water, Whatever shelter. Well, look, they're being asked all now to kneel down in front of the Belarusian security forces. And when they kneel down, look, then some of them are being allowed to go through. Who is this? Um, his name is Aji. Hello, Aji. How are you? Hi. You good? You speak English too. Do you speak a little bit of English? Yeah. Shohan and her four-year-old son also travelled to Belarus from Iraqi Kurdistan to help her child, she told me. Uh, we came here from, because of my son, because he needs he need an operation. He needs uh, an operation? Yeah, big operation in the back. Oh, uh, no. Yeah, uh, he can't walk away without this. Oh, I see, he's got, yeah. He's yeah, got uh-huh. this uh, splint on his leg. Yeah, uh, he I can't see. walk away without this shoes. Why didn't you do this operation in Kurdistan? Uh, because not uh, uh, not very good. Maybe he failed, and the, the operation failed. And uh, we need to go to Germany. Everyone uh, and the doctor told me that uh, the, the operation in Germany is very good. But now Germany looks a long way off, with Belarus and the West blaming each other for this crisis. 
It's these people stuck in the middle who are paying the price. Well, Jake, tonight, Belarusian border officials are warning that the number of people in that refugee camp on the border with Poland could double in size in the next week if the crisis remains unresolved. Back to you. If you stay with us, I want to bring back Fred Pleitkin, who's on the Polish side of the border. Um, and let's talk about this. Fred, German Chancellor Angela Merkel says she's trying to de-escalate the tensions mm. uh, along EU borders. We're learning that twice this week she spoke by phone with Russian President Vladimir Putin, who is obviously uh, on the Belarus- Belarusian side of this. I- exactly what is Merkel mm. calling on him to do? Hmm. Yeah, and of course, it's uh, it's clear why she's trying to do that. It was so interesting in Matthew's piece where you really saw that pretty much everywhere there, uh, the people who are there, they want to go to Germany. And so Angela Merkel really feels she needs to get involved. Essentially, she admitted that she wanted Vladimir Putin to play a constructive role. She said she asked Vladimir Putin for help. And she's actually getting some criticism here in Europe now for thinking that Vladimir Putin would actually play a constructive role. From the last readout that we have from their phone conversation, uh, the most recent one, uh, apparently all Vladimir Putin said is that he believed that the only way out of this was for the EU to restart dialogue with Alexander Lukashenko. Of course, the European Union has no interest in doing that after you had those elections in Belarus, which the EU says they believed were not free and fair after the opposition was crushed in Belarus, after Belarus brought down an EU-flagged commercial airliner. And now after this is happening, certainly right now, the EU is talking about tougher sanctions rather than new dialogue with Alexander Lukashenko, Jake. And, And Matthew, Russia... It's not just closely allied with the dictatorship in Belarus. It is brazenly inserting itself into the standoff, participating in paratrooper drills with Belarus near the border. I can't imagine. I mean, the sight of uniformed troops literally raining down from the sky has got to be very concerning for those on the ground. Well, I think it's concerning for those on the ground across the border on the on the European side, because, yes, there have been these joint uh, paratroop exercises that took place today, just a short distance from the border, linked precisely because of the escalation in tensions uh, with uh, European countries, with Poland in particular, um, over this refugee crisis. There have also been a couple of, you know, very high profile overflights by nuclear capable bombers uh, from uh, Russia in the region as well. And so, you know, Russia is really sort of backing to the hilt its Belarusian ally. And, you know, just like uh, Alexander Lukashenko, the Belarusian leader, uh, has been warning of the possibility of a military confrontation if this crisis escalates, it's been made quite clear by Moscow that they stand four square behind their ally if it comes to that. And Fred, Poland is accusing Belarus authorities of of using green Mm. lasers to temporarily blind Polish soldiers. It seems that a a provocative act uh, could push this already Mm. tense situation into a much bigger kinetic conflict. Yeah, it, it, it certainly could. And I do think that the threat is, is really real from, from, from being here uh, on the ground. And the polls also released video of that incident uh, where they said that those laser pointers were used. And in general, you can see from a lot of the videos that are being released from that border region have been released over the past couple of days that there is a good deal of belligerence uh, between the Polish forces and the Belarusian forces, which, of course, are in very close proximity. And that's why I think uh, you were absolutely right, Jake, to, to say that this is a humanitarian crisis that's unfolding there that could have very, very big implications for the region if it spirals out of control. Certainly, it seems as though the threat is there, Jake. All right, Matthew Chance and Fred Pleitkin with excellent reporting from both sides of the Belarus-Poland border. Thanks to both of you. 
Coming up, an American journalist sentenced to years in prison in a place where the military has been wiping away democracy and freedom. We're going to talk to another journalist who was imprisoned abroad next. Stay with us. In the world lead today, 11 years behind bars. That's the unjust sentence today on trumped-up charges from Myanmar's military imposed on an American journalist. 37-year-old Danny Fenster from Detroit. We've told you about him before. He was the managing editor at Frontier Myanmar, which is an independent newspaper in that country. The paper now says that the military imposed the harshest sentence possible on him, charging Fenster, and really, we shouldn't even mention this because it's all bogus, but three crimes under its laws against publishing content that causes fear or spreads false news. It's nonsense. It's crap. This isn't a democratic government convicting this American journalist today. It's Myanmar's military running the entire country, pushing propaganda and lies after its successful coup back in February that ousted the democratically elected government. Let's bring in another journalist who sadly knows all too well about being detained by a power-hungry, undemocratic regime, Jason Rezaian, the Washington Post journalist who spent 18 months locked up in Iran on their trumped-up charges. He's author of the book Prisoner, and the podcast 544 Days about his time in prison. The lead recommends both. Jason, thanks so much for being here. So Danny Fenster is now convicted of violating what's considered basic freedoms of the press uh, here in the United States and in the Western world. What's your reaction today to the sentence, 11 years? Well, first of all, you know, my heart goes out to Danny and his entire family. I know the feeling of being uh, unjustly detained. A single day is a nightmare. 11 years uh, is a prospect that uh, that no one should uh, have to uh, to accept for for the for the the crime of doing journalism. Uh, I'm hopeful that the U.S. government's able to intervene on Danny's behalf and uh, do whatever it can to get him home sooner. But you know he's already been behind bars for uh, more than 150 days, and uh, that's a long time uh, for someone who simply was in a country. That he cared about telling the truth. Yeah, sharing facts about what was going on in the wake of a military coup. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki was asked about Danny Fenster's sentencing today. Take a listen. I will say that obviously we are always concerned about the detention of individuals around the world, uh, journalists, uh, dissidents, uh, people who are speaking freely and uh, speaking on behalf of the media as well. Um, in terms of direct action, it really would be under the purview at this point of the State Department. I hope that that statement is as it is. Because it's diplomatic. Chen Saki used to be a State Department spokeswoman, so she would know diplomacy. Uh, and they're trying to get him out, and not that it's a weak statement. Look, I, I think that there's very few things that they can say publicly that will make a difference. Uh, the real work is done behind the scenes, often uh, in secret. Um, but we have to remember, Jake, that there are Americans who are detained in various countries uh, on legitimate charges. Sure. Hundreds. Drug smuggling, whatever. thousands. Currently, there are dozens of Americans who are uh, wrongfully detained by, by governments. And that's just a diplomatic euf- euphemism for being held hostage. Danny Fenster is one of those people. Um, and the State Department um, considers him one of those people. And, and I hope that, that they are actively uh, pursuing every diplomatic means available to them, uh, including um, asymmetrical ones, right? This is not the sort of thing that is done 
uh, in, a, in a public negotiation that, that has a press conference that, that follows it. It's done behind the scenes, and I hope that's taking place right now. Well, Frontier Myanmar, the newspaper that Danny Fenster worked for, said the military is trying to intimidating whatever, intimidate all remaining journalists in Myanmar by, by punishing him for speaking truth, for reporting facts, and that his arrest is really retaliation for economic sanctions that the U.S. has imposed on the country because of the coup. Um, when you talk about... Uh, what the Biden administration can be doing. Uh, obviously, we don't want to reward bad behavior as a country. What, what, what are you talking about? Well, you have to look for the carrots, as they say, uh, that might work. Um, and I think that the challenge in these, these uh, cases is always, how do we bring that American who's being wrongfully detained, held hostage, home without um, encouraging further actions like this by Myanmar or other governments? Um, And I I think that uh, lifting some of those sanctions, if that's a possibility, is something to pursue. There might be something else that that the Myanmar government wants. But hear them out, because at the end of the day, there's an innocent American, an innocent journalist, being held hostage on the other side of the world for doing nothing other than his job. Frontier uh, says that the charges are falsely based on allegations that Fenster worked for another outlet, which was banned in the country called Myanmar Now, which Fenster resigned from that outlet uh, back in 2020. He was arrested almost a year later on his way back home to see his family. I, I mean, I guess even raising this is silly because this is all just nonsense. They just wanted to take an American hostage for reporting the truth. Again, I, I've been through one of these, and uh, every time I, I read the reporting uh, of my own case or the reporting on cases of journalists who are being held in other parts of the world, um, I always uh, sort of push aside the charges, the right. actual charges, because uh, not only are they bogus, they're oftentimes based in, in nothing more than, than innuendo scraped together from emails and, and things that they've been able to, uh, to, to, to access. Uh, but ultimately, uh, I, I don't think that there's any merit to the case, and I don't think that the Myanmar government thinks that there is. But it's an excellent point that the media, the news media has a responsibility when reporting on this, not to both sides it. These are trumped-up charges against a journalist. Jason Resign, thank you so much, and congratulations again on the podcast. Thanks, Jake. Breaking news in Britney Spears' long legal fight to get back control of her life. That's next. Breaking news in our pop culture lead today. Britney Spears' long battle to win her freedom is over. Supporters of the pop star celebrated outside a Los Angeles courtroom just moments ago after a judge granted the singer's request to terminate her 13-year conservatorship, under which she had no control of her life, really, including her own reproductive freedom. Let's go live now to CNN's Chloe Malas in Los Angeles. And Chloe, you were inside the courtroom when the decision was announced. Tell us what happened. Hey there, Jake. By far the most important, significant, momentous day of Britney Spears' entire life. Her 13-year conservatorship has come to an end. Britney Spears goes to bed tonight, wakes up tomorrow in control of her finances, in control of her medical decisions. For the last 13 years, that's a role that her father had held. Uh, Then a woman by the name of Jody Montgomery was in charge of her medical decisions for a while. I want to read to you a quote from Judge Brenda Penny. She said, quote, effective 
today. The conservatorship of the estate in person is hereby terminated. It's official. Now, also, Jake, uh, something that Britney Spears said multiple times during her emotional testimonies over the summer was that she wanted the conservatorship terminated without a medical evaluation, and Judge Brenda Penny agreed to that, that Britney does not have to undergo any more doctor's appointments or medical evaluations in order for this conservatorship to be over. But the temporary conservator of her $60 million estate, a man by the name of Mr. Zabel, he has a few loose ends to tie up when it comes to her finances, but otherwise, it's over. And Chloe, this ruling follows a, a tumultuous, long, highly publicized legal battle between the singer and her father. Obviously, conservatorships in general have been a part of this debate and discussion, but specifically when it comes to these two, Brittany and her dad, does this mean her legal fight with her father is over? Unfortunately, no. So uh, Britney Spears's father uh, is actually set to potentially be deposed by uh, Britney Spears's new attorney, Matthew Rosengart. And when I say unfortunately, no, because, of course, obviously, it's sad to see uh, Britney be estranged from both her mother and her father. But again, Britney Spears and her attorney have said all along that they believe that Jamie Spears mishandled her finances, something that he says that he has not done. They also want to talk to him about these alleged recording devices that he potentially placed in her bedroom, according to the New York Times. So this will continue, Jake, outside of this courtroom. All right, Chloe Moss, thank you so much. Appreciate it. A record number of Americans just quit their jobs. What might be replacing them? That's next. In our money lead, is the labor shortage setting the stage for a robot takeover? Companies added a record 29,000 robots in the first nine months of this year, greater than 37% increase over the same period last year. The rush to add robots comes as a record 4.4 million Americans quit their jobs in September. Many firms say they view the machines, the robots, as a necessary alternative as they have struggled to retain and hire workers amid the great resignation. So perhaps the robot revolution isn't coming. It's, it's already here. And what, I say, what could possibly go wrong? Please check out the Homes for Our Troops fifth annual Veterans Day celebrity auction. A lot of great items up on bidding on eBay, including a gorgeous fancy dress worn in a movie and donated by Mindy Kaling. You could Zoom with Winona Judge or Elizabeth Banks, Winona Judd rather, or Elizabeth Banks, Two tickets to a Mets or Phillies game. Watch the game with Bob Costas, Ron Burgundy memorabilia, autographed by Will Ferrell. All proceeds go to build specially designed homes for severely wounded veterans and their families. You can see all the items at ebay.com slash HFOT, Homes for Our Troops. Bidding ends on Sunday. Until then, be sure to tune in to State of the Union Sunday morning. Among the guests, Director of the National Economic Council, Brian Deese, Republican Congressman Fred Upton, plus more of our exclusive interview with Republican Congressman Anthony Gonzalez, 9 and noon Eastern on CNN. Our coverage on CNN continues now. I'll see you Sunday morning. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.